CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we share the lessons from astronaut Scott Kelly's amazing career, from what it takes to become an astronaut to surviving NASA's grueling training, the powerful experience of being in outer space, and the lessons you can learn and apply to your life with our guest, the first human to spend a year in space, Commander Scott Kelly. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed how to identify and defeat the stories that hold you back, how to use your complaints as a compass to improve your life, powerful methods for creating permanent habit change, and we unmask the number one reason why you resist making big changes in your life with our previous guest, Jin Sincero. Scott Kelly is an American engineer, retired astronaut, author, and naval aviator. He's best known for spending a record-breaking year in space. He is a former U.S. Navy fighter pilot, test pilot, and veteran of four space flights. Kelly commanded the Space Shuttle Endeavor in 2007 and twice commanded the International Space Station. He has documented his experiences in both films and his books, including Endurance, My Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery, My Journey to the Stars, and most recently, his children's book, Goodnight Astronaut. 
Scott, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me, Matt. Look forward to it. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show today. As I was telling you a little bit in the pre-show, I'm a big fan of space and astronauts and science and all of that. So it's an honor truly to have you on the show. I'm a fan of science too. So great to be here. Excellent. Well, I'd love to start out with, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but I mean, to be an astronaut is such a monumental achievement. I mean, the pool of people that want to get to that place and the people that actually make it through. And I think you've once described yourself as kind of a, a below average guy performing at an above average level. So I'd really be curious in that journey to becoming an astronaut, how and where did you step off kind of the path of an ordinary life and veer into a trajectory towards the extraordinary? Well, I was a, you know, I'm kind of the atypical kind of person that gets this job because my whole education when I was a kid growing up, up until my first year of college, I wasn't a very good student. Couldn't pay attention. You know, I was a kid that sat in the back of the room looking out the window or, you know, looking at the clock, just trying to make it go faster. You get out of there. And I wanted to do well, but it was impossible. I could not pay attention. Probably have, you know, ADD or ADHD. And for me, it wasn't until I was in college, I'm still struggling, that I happened to go into the college bookstore one day to buy gum or a snack or something. And I just stumbled across Tom Wolfe's book, The Right Stuff and read it. And it inspired me that maybe I could do something greater than I thought was previously possible if I could become a better student. So, you know, that was kind of the inspiration, the spark that I needed. And it wasn't easy at first. I kind of brute forced my way into figuring out how to study and pay attention. But that was the inspiration that I needed. And basically 18 years later from the time almost to the day of when I read Tom's book at 18 years old, I am uh, launching into space for the first time. What did that feel like? I'm assuming you don't necessarily mean the, the launch or maybe the launch itself, but you know, I'll answer for both of them. You know, the trajectory, the path I was on was challenging. You know, there were bumps along the way, but I never gave up, kept focused, always tried to do my best and know as much about Anything I was doing, whether it was learning how to fly a new airplane or being a test pilot later, you know, learning how to fly the space shuttle prior to going into space. So, yeah, it was a, you know, certainly a, a serious 18 years of trying to do well in college, trying to do well in my first jobs in the military, trying to become a better pilot all the time. And it culminated with, you know, strapping myself into a rocket and uh, launching on a mission to the Hubble Space Telescope when I was, I don't know, I must have been like 35 years old. So, you know, fairly young to be doing that, your first flight into space. And it, I didn't really consider it at the time. You know, I was just really focused on what I was doing. But, you know, in retrospect, it was a pretty miraculous comeback, I think. Did you always know that you wanted to be an astronaut or was that a path that you wound your way to? Never really considered it. I mean, I certainly as a kid was interested in the space program because it was on TV, as was like I Dream of Genie. So space was something that seemed like it was, you know, fun and exciting and, you know, a little bit part of my life. But never in a million years would I have ever thought not only could I be an astronaut, but I never even considered the fact that I could be a pilot. I remember I was in the Cub Scouts uh, 
we used to go on these field trips and I, I don't know, it must've been, I don't know, probably in the fourth grade or something. And we, her den mother, her job was, she worked at Burger King and we go on this field trip to Burger King and I'm like, yeah, I could see myself working here at Burger King someday. This is pretty cool. I could do this. And then like a few weeks later, we go to Newark airport and uh, we get on an airplane. I don't know. It must have been like a 727 probably at the time. And we go into the cockpit. And I remember looking at all these like switches and circuit breakers and levers and knobs and all these things. I thought to myself, there is no way I would ever be able to learn how to operate something like this. And I just thought it was impossible. And as it turns out, I was wrong. There's so many different avenues I want to explore here. But when you look at both your own journey into the space program and becoming an astronaut and the other people that you went into space with and who became astronauts, what were some of the commonalities that you saw or common themes of what enabled somebody to make it in the door and then make it through that process? So, you know, a lot of people's, their, a lot of the, my colleagues, their story was, you know, they saw Neil Armstrong walk on the moon or, you know, the early days of the late days of the Apollo program, early days of the shuttle program. And then that inspired them enough as little kids to do well in school and always, you know, be performing at a very high level and go to a really good college and get a really good job and, you know, always be the best of the best. That's not everyone's story, though. I mean, there are certain exceptions. You know, there's a couple of astronauts that were a product of community college at first. There are people, me and my brother's a little bit of more like me, but he kind of figured his whole how to be a good student out when we went into high school where it took me a few more years. But I think what gets people the job is really, you know, they have to certainly have, they have to look good on paper. I've been actually been on the selection board and to pick astronauts. So I'm familiar from both sides of this, both sides of the process. And you know, certainly you have to be qualified. You have to have a resume that kind of separates you out from your peers that are also applying. So something on there that's unique. I think what kind of helped my brother and I is are we is that even though we were test pilots, we both went to a college and uh, that had it was a maritime college, two different ones. So we had experience driving ships which that kind of makes you stand out a little bit um, amongst other pilots. So there generally has to be something different about your background that helps you get an interview. But then once you get an interview, it's almost like it's kind of like a popularity contest in that they know you're qualified to do the job. Your job experiences has proved that. Now, who does the selection board think would be the best people to be their future colleagues? In other words, would you get along with this person in space? You know, would you enjoy working with them, spending time with them? So it's more of kind of like a personality thing than it is a technical thing because you're kind of considered technically qualified when you get the interview. And it's a tough job. I mean, you know, you get, you interview like 120 people and you have to pick maybe, I don't know, 15 of them and they're all very highly qualified. It's actually a pretty tough process that sometimes we actually make mistakes. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that were probably more qualified and maybe would have done a better job at being an astronaut than I did. 
And so in essence, you're saying the technical qualifications are almost the table stakes just to get in the door. And from that point, it's much more about, and correct me if this is a mischaracterization, but emotional intelligence, fit, culture, do you, you know, are they a good fit for the team, et cetera? Exactly. It's about, you know, teamwork and would you be a good team player? Would you be the type of person that the other astronauts would want to fly in space with? Yeah, it's kind of assumed that you can do the job, but are you the person that they would want to do the job with? What are some of those traits that you would look for from a, an emotional intelligence standpoint? And maybe that term is too narrow, but you know, what are the leadership traits or the qualities, the qualitative things beyond the technical expertise that would stand out for you and, and really be necessary? Well, being, you know, I think before you can be a good leader, you need to be a good follower to be someone that would be, you know, pretty calm under pressure, which that job certainly has times and moments where there's a lot of pressure to be somebody that, you know, gets along well with their colleagues and, you know, would be somebody that you think could handle a situation when you're isolated for a really long time with very few people and, uh, you know, someone who's very self-sufficient and, you know, doesn't need a lot of direction, kind of like a self-starter, I think is important. And, you know, certainly someone that can technically do the job, but that's almost like a given, like you said, you know, before you even show up for the interview. And then the other thing is you got to be medically qualified. That kind of knocks a lot of people out. You touched on being calm under pressure. Obviously, I mean, if you look across pretty much any endeavor, any field on earth, I think the mental toughness required to be an astronaut is probably at the pinnacle, if not tied for a few other things at the pinnacle. Do you think that that mental toughness that's required is something that's innate or is it something that is trained? I don't know. It's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I think, you know, if I think of myself as a young person, I was pretty good at dealing with like stressful situations. My parents didn't get along well, and uh, there was a lot of stress in our household over that. I think it kind of prepared me well for dealing in a stressful environment. The other thing that's really important, though, and I didn't really mention it before, is trustworthiness. You know, people that you can trust to do the right thing. People that when they make a mistake, they admit it. They don't make excuses. In spaceflight, that is so, so critical because if you're the type of person that, you know, tries to blame other people for your errors or tries to hide or cover things up, you know, that could be just as deadly as not being qualified to do the job. So, you know, that's the other type of person you look for is someone who's very you know, not only competent, but someone that you can trust. That's such a powerful insight. And to me, I always love studying fields like the military, aviation, et cetera, because in essence, they're crucibles where the principles of success are forced out because it's in many cases a life and death situation. And the notion that you can't hide from making a mistake, you can't make an excuse, you can't try and defend your ego. Instead, you really need to own up to it and see your own weaknesses. And it's such a critical theme. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your perspective on that. Well, certainly, you know, having a big ego is, should almost be a disqualifier for this job because, you know, there's so many things about it that could, you know, inflate your ego to where if you come in with, in the, into the door with an ego, you know, and over time, it's just going to get bigger unless you're, kind of an egoless person. 
which I think is also important. You know, sometimes you come across people that they try to make the whole thing about them, and it really isn't. It's really a team effort to have, uh, you know, understand that you're in a privileged position in this organization, NASA, and there's so many people that, you know, work their whole lives to make it capable for you to have this privilege of flying in space and perform your job. And they're, you know, they're just as important as you are. Yeah, that's such a critical insight that it's a much bigger team and it's not just about you and it's not even just about the people that go into space. Yeah, I mean, it's really about the, you know, the taxpayers and it's their program and we're really working for them. And but I think sometimes people lose sight of that. Unfortunately, not only at NASA, but I'm saying, you know, government wide. Yep. Well, coming back to something you touched on a minute ago, earlier in your career, you were a test pilot, which, and this may be my layman's perspective that could be incorrect, but I feel like that's one of the most potentially dangerous jobs that you could be in. How did you think about or approach the path of becoming a test pilot? Yeah, it's potentially, you know, one of the most dangerous jobs. It depends on what you're testing, what airplane you're flying. You know, sometimes test pilots, you know, test like weapon systems and you're really, you know, testing more of a computer versus, you know, the flying qualities and performance of an airplane. In my case, I was where I was stationed. We did flying qualities and performance and carrier suitability testing, weapons uh, separation testing. So, you know, a lot of it was fairly high risk. And the way you approach that job is really kind of the way I approached everything. You know, once I figured out how to study and pay attention and it's just, you know, knowing as much as you possibly can about what you're trying to do. This idea of compartmentalization, we often talk about in the military and it certainly applies at NASA, you know, knowing, you know, what are the things you have control over and what are the most important things at that moment you need to be focused on and then ignoring everything else which, uh, you know, the stuff that you may not have control over or the stuff that doesn't matter, you know, at that particular time and being very precise, you know, test pilots a little bit different than the, you know, Chuck Yeager kind of test pilot. Chuck Yeager was a great pilot, but he wasn't the kind of test pilot we have today, which is your skills as a pilot are important, but your skills as an engineer are almost equally as important for you to, you know, look at a problem, come up with solutions, test those solutions, you know, write a report about it, being able to explain what's wrong with the airplane, how to fix it. So, uh, you know, those are kind of the important skills, I think, to have in that job. Tell me more about the concept of compartmentalization. Well, like as an example, on the space shuttle, I launched twice in the front row. I was the pilot of a Hubble mission. And in 1999, my second flight, I was the commander. So, you know, I was sitting in the right seat my first flight. Second flight, I'm in the left seat as the commander of the mission, launching into space twice and never really looked out the window one time during launch, which is kind of hard to believe. But and it wasn't even I didn't even think about it because my job was to, you know, monitor the systems and be prepared for dealing with malfunctions and to fly and operate the vehicle. It was not to be looking out the window. So I never looked out the window once. So it really means to, you know, focus on what you need to be focusing on in that moment, know what that is and putting a hundred percent of your attention. Now that doesn't mean you're kind of 
you're losing sight of the big picture. I mean, you have to kind of at the same time consider the big picture of the environment and the situation you're in. But there are certain things that like in the space shuttle, you know, if you, you know, throw a switch at the wrong time or push a button at the wrong time, you can blow the thing up and kill yourself and your crew. If you're not, you know, a hundred percent certain and focused about what you're going to do next. Those are some high stakes. The highest. Okay. It's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with bite and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at bite.com. Bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but how do you approach fear in those kinds of situations? And what is your perspective on fear throughout your career? Well, I think fear is a natural emotion. I think it's important. I think if, if we didn't have fear as a species, we probably wouldn't evolve to where we are today because, you know, we would have gotten, you know, eaten by the saber toothed tiger, right? Because we weren't scared of them. So I think fear is an important thing. You know, it can focus your attention, but it's also something you need to be able to control. And, you know, I've had a lot of situations in my professional career where, you know, you're scared. Landing on the ship at night is not only is it scary, but it's like half the time doing it in the F-14 Tomcat at night on a pitching deck is terrifying. And, you know, sometimes if the moon's out, if the weather's calm, it's just scary. But yeah, during the day, you know, you do it enough, it kind of becomes fun. But at night, it's never fun, at least for me. So, You know, fear is something that you need to live with. It's something that you shouldn't be ashamed of having to be scared, but it's also something you need to control. But I think it also focuses you, your attention, you know, what's important, right? If you're in a situation where you're scared because the saber-toothed tiger is going to eat you, that's the most important thing at that moment. Yeah, that's a really good insight. Are there any particular things that you did for yourself or you saw others do in some of these incredibly high stakes situations to cultivate a better relationship with fear? Nothing I can really think of, you know, I don't know, maybe some people meditate or, you know, do yoga, 
I never did that for helping me get past anything I was ever scared about. I would just try to rationalize it. Like, you know, the first time you're getting ready to launch in the space shuttle, the first time, especially you think, you know, this is quite possibly the last thing I ever do. And you rationalize doing it by the fact that it's important. Hopefully you think it's important. It's something that you've weighed, you know, the risk in your mind and maybe even beyond that, you know, you look at the risk and, you know, of, of certain failures and the probability of those things happening. And then eventually you come to terms with the fact that, okay, you know, I've been trying to do this my whole life. I'm willing to accept this risk and, you know, knock on wood. Hopefully it goes well. Prepare for the worst and hope for the best. How do you think about failure? differently than most people would. Well, I think, you know, failure is part of life. And if we were so scared of failure that we would never try, then we wouldn't achieve the things that we have, you know, achieved in, uh, as a species. Imagine like the Wright brothers, if they were, you know, scared of, you know, not being able to fly that airplane the first time and were worried they were going to fail. We wouldn't have the, you know, and, and if everyone was like that, we would still be, you know, tied to the earth. So I think failure is important. I think, you know, people that are really successful in life, they sometimes set their bar above what they think they're capable of doing. When I was learning to fly the F-14, I couldn't land on the ship very well at first. And I failed the first time and they sent me home during the daytime. I, was, I even had problems, uh, which is not too uncommon, but it's never good to fail. And, you know, I got back to shore and the squadron CEO said, well, you know, you pretty much scared the crap out of those instructors and we're not sure you're going to, we're going to let you do this again. And they said, well, you know, if you want, you can go fly a big airplane, like an airliner that doesn't land on the ship. Maybe that'd be easier for you. Probably would be. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that. And maybe I won't be able to land on the ship if given a second time, a second chance. But I thought, you know, if I'm going to fail at something, I might as well fail at something I think I can't do, right? Rather than something that's easier. At least then I'll know, you know, for the rest of my life, at least I tried and failed rather than never try at all. I forget who said that. But I think it's a really important you know, trait that people have that are very successful where they're willing to make mistakes and fail and try again. You know, if you look at, you know, successful entrepreneurs in our society, you know, many of them had failed many, many times before they finally hit, you know, the right set of circumstances and had some success. So I think failure is something that is good for people. It's good for our society. No one wants to fail, but if you never failed at anything, you're probably not setting your bar high enough. Yeah, that's a great perspective. And I love tying that back into the story about landing on the aircraft carrier. I can't even imagine what that experience is like. It's horrible. How did you get another shot at doing that? Well, they gave me the option and I said, well, you know, I didn't really consider the flying the big airplane much because that's not what I wanted to do. So, you know, but I was told, hey, you're going to have to do not just pass, you're going to have to do well enough that we know you're not going to be a danger to yourself or your, you know, your Rio in the back or people on the flight deck. And the way I was able to get past it, actually, the Navy gave me this new Rio, an instructor. We, 
The F-14 doesn't have a controls in the backseat. There's never been a Tomcat with a second set of controls. So when you're the pilot flying the airplane, it's kind of all you. The only thing the guy that you can do in the back really to help you is talk to you. And, you know, I guess if things got really bad, they can eject. But other than that, they don't really have, they have control of the weapon system, but not flying the airplane. And But they teamed me up with this guy that was really good at helping guys that had trouble. We practiced on land. And, you know, eventually he, he said to me, he goes, you know, you can fly this airplane okay. But what I notice about you is that you are not, you're too comfortable with when things are kind of going along all right. You're too comfortable with the status quo, how things are. And because you're not making very, very small positive corrections all the time, you know, things never stay the same. They either get better or they get worse. And as long as you're trying to make them a little bit better, you're more likely to have your situation not deteriorate to where you're, you know, flying in the back, landing and, you know, the hook hitting the back of the ship again and potentially crashing. So I kind of took that lesson with me throughout my career and even, you know, in my personal life. And that is, you know, things never stay the same. We do not live in a static world. You're either going to improve and get better, whether it's a business, whether it's flying an airplane on the ship, the space shuttle, the space station, or you're going to get worse. And to keep things from getting worse, you got to always be trying to make at least small improvements. And that helped me that philosophy. That's a great philosophy. And that anecdote reminds me a little bit of the theme that you have spoken about and, and it's in your gopher launch program, the idea of not being, or I guess the concept that you have of the smartest person on the mission. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes I've seen people think yeah, they, you know, they're the smartest person in the room and maybe that's sometimes the case, but usually it's not. And I think recognizing that, you know, you don't know everything and, you know, why teamwork is so important is because, you know, people are good at different things. They have different perspectives, you know, and one person is not going to be able to do everything well. And, you know, knowing, you know, who has what skills, who's the smartest person at this or at that is really a force multiplier in doing things that are challenging and difficult. So, you know, I would always try to, you know, seek out different opinions after the Challenger accident, which was really a leadership management leadership failure. NASA really, you know, reflected very much internally on our culture at NASA. And one thing we learned was that we didn't give everyone the appropriate attention and voice that they should have had. And Oftentimes, you could also get into the situation of groupthink, where if the smartest person thinks we should do something one way, then they kind of drag along a lot of people with them because they're, those people think, well, that guy thinks it's, we should do this this way because he's the smartest person, and let's just kind of go along like you know sheep. We have this room at NASA now that we call it the sports bar. It's not a bar. It's not about sports, but there's a lot of TVs in there, and it's a mission management team room that has uh, where a lot of the really important decisions are made. And there's a poster on the wall, and then one of the posters says, I think it's the greatest thing. It says, none of us are as dumb as all of us, <laughs> meaning that sometimes you get this group thing together. 
and you kind of go off in the wrong direction. Now, certainly the corollary is also applies is that none of us is smart as all of us either. It's just a matter of figuring that out. And then we, you know, made some course corrections after Challenger and basically made kind of the same mistakes all over again with Columbia. It's amazing how even when you're aware of the perils of groupthink, how easy it is to fall into the trap and let those biases impact your decision making. Yeah, I mean, it happens. It happens a lot. What are some of the other decision making lessons that you learned at NASA and while you were thinking through some of those challenges? You know, for me, I've often been asked, like, you know, about like decision making style, leadership style. And I found that it kind of depends on the situation, right? Like sometimes, as let's say I'm the commander of the space shuttle or the space station, I would know my crew members pretty well and know that, hey, that person is kind of the expert on this more than I am. Hey, what do you think we should do? You decide. I'm going to just let you make the decision because you're smarter about this than I am. You know, sometimes a democracy is good, you know, depending on the situation, what you're trying to decide. Hey, let's just vote. Majority wins, right? You know, oftentimes you get opinions as the leader, other people's opinions, and you make the decision. You know, you know, for me, it was basically, you know, gathering as much information as possible, depending on the situation. I mean, sometimes you have to make a decision in an instant, like shutting down the main engines of the space shuttle with a certain failure. You have to decide yourself and make a decision right now that has the ultimate of consequences, but then other things can often wait, you know? So there's time to be the dictator, the authoritarian, and there's times when you can wait. And I also have this philosophy that I used at NASA and I even use it throughout my personal life. And it is when in doubt, do nothing unless you have no choice. But if there's any doubt, you probably better off not taking action. Tell me more about that. That's really interesting. Well, rather than making the wrong decision, it's better to just leave things as they are, I've found. You know, but certainly there are times when you have no choice. You have to, like, uh, there's a fire on the space station. What do we do? I'm not sure. Do we do this or do we do that? The do nothing option is really not a good one. So there are times when that doesn't apply. What was the or one of the scariest moments for you when you were either in space or launching into space? I would say like the worst personal, like upsetting, scary, I don't know how you want to call it was for me was January 8th, 2011. I was on the space station halfway through my six month flight. And my sister-in-law, Gabby Giffords, my brother's wife was shot in uh, Tucson, Arizona. And I was actually even told that she had passed away. She died. And uh, she didn't, thank God. And uh, yeah, that was really, char that was pretty scary, challenging, hard, you know, to deal with where you have this incredible, uh, you know, this horrific family tragedy and you can't be there. So I guess other scary things, I don't know. First time you launch into space, you know, spacewalks are a little weird. I wouldn't say they're scary, but you're definitely... You have a heightened sense that, you know, this is not a natural environment to be working in when you are in a vacuum, 
you can feel how hot the sun is when it's, you know, shining on you or, you know, you put your hand on a handrail that is, you know, 270 degrees. You can feel that heat come through the glove. Or likewise, you know, the sun goes down and like a few seconds later, now it's minus 270 degrees and you're in a vacuum and you're flying around the earth at 17,500 miles an hour and you're looking around and you see all these little holes in like metal handrails that where they've been hit by micrometeoroid debris and you think, wow, if one of those things hit my visor right now, I'd be in big trouble. I'd be like that, you know, guy on the gravity movie that, you know, basically had his head, you know, a giant hole torn through his head. So it's kind of an unnatural thing. I wouldn't say it's almost like it's so challenging and difficult and requires so much focus that you really don't even have the mental capacity to be scared. That totally makes sense. What was that? And this is maybe less directly relevant to the spacewalk itself, but I've always read about that experience of the first time you sort of see Earth from space and, you know, the pale blue dot kind of we're all, you know, this frail ecosystem all floating out there all by ourselves. What was that experience like? Well, it's definitely an awe-inspiring thing. On my first flight, like I said, I didn't really look out the window and uh, wasn't until we got into space that, you know, about 20 minutes later, I just happened to glance outside and I was like, whoa, what is that? I said to the commander, I said, what the hell is that? And he said, well, that's the sunrise. And I was like, wow. And as the sun came up, I just saw how brilliantly blue our planet Earth is. You know, it's almost like someone took the most brilliant blue paint and just painted it like on a mirror right in front of my eyes. And I don't know why people call it the pale blue dot, though, because it's not pale to me. It's like the most brilliant blue you've ever seen. And I could see they can call it the brilliant blue dot. But it's definitely blue. It's a lot of water out there. I wonder why they didn't call, like, instead of calling the planet Earth, which means, like, dirt to me, they should have called it planet water instead. I think that'd be a that's better a, name. Yeah, that's a good insight. We should be planet water. We're made mostly yeah. of water. It's pretty important. Yeah. It's much more important than dirt. Interesting. Well, I think the pale blue dot comes from the old Carl Sagan book that you know, they have the picture of like a one pixel blue earth taken from like one of the rings of or one of the moons of Saturn or something. And so it was like this tiny little thing that you could barely see. Ah, so it was more of a function of the camera uh, technology of the time. Yeah, exactly. And it was from, yeah. you know, a crazy distance yeah. as, as well. But yeah, I mean, that's so cool. I'm, that's an experience I would like to have. Hopefully commercial space flight can can get there at some point. But yeah, right. And there's SpaceX is signing people up. That's right. And that's great. I mean, you might not be able to afford it now, but enough people do it and the price will come down. Yeah. I'm hoping in 20 or 30 years, it'll be reasonably feasible to do. So earlier you touched on a couple of different times, actually, the theme of sort of isolation. And I mean, you know, your biggest claim to fame, I think, is that you spent a year in space. How did you deal with that isolation and, and what are some of the ways that you coped with it? You know, I flew this six month mission first between 2010 and 2011. And generally like the last third of a flight like that, people start to feel like the anxiety of being in this isolated life with, you know, as 
situation where you don't have as much control over your schedule. You don't have the ability to go outside. You kind of feel the anxiety building and the, you know, the walls closing in a little bit. And so when the idea came up about flying in space for a year for an astronaut and also a cosmonaut, I was not initially that interested in it. But eventually, like many things, you get further from something that's, you know, has some negative aspects to it. You kind of remember the good part and less the hard and challenging things. But I did want to fly in space again. And I wanted it to be challenging. I wanted it to be different. So eventually I kind of warmed up the idea that, you know, what would make this more challenging than the thing that was the hardest, which was being in space for a long time. And now it's going to be more than twice as long. So eventually I thought, yeah, I'll put my name in the hat for this. But I did it with a lot of thought. Like I wanted to get to the end of the flight with as much energy and enthusiasm as I had in the beginning. During the course of the mission, we had three different flight directors, and I wanted the guy that I had in the beginning, the mission control flight director, when he talked to the woman that was the last flight director I had, I wanted them to think that they had the same person on board. And the way I was able to do that and get to that situation, where I think I did, you'd have to ask them, but is that, you know, it was about pacing myself. It was about having a schedule that balanced work and, you know, time for exercise and time to connect with my friends and family on the ground, balanced with hobbies. I made sure that as much as I possibly could, that the weekends were different than the weekdays. Like I didn't overwork myself on the weekend. Some astronauts can do that because it's kind of a unique experience. And, but I didn't think I could sustain that for a year so. I found that having something to look forward to that was only five days away was much better for my mental state than thinking I'm just going to look to the end of this mission that in the beginning was a year from the start. That was so far away, I didn't feel like I could even see the end of it from the beginning. So I tried to think in very small chunks of time. And mostly... The fact that it was part of my job to be there for a long time, it was part of my mission, made it easier. And I think in this situation we're living in now with this pandemic, if everyone considered, if everyone on the planet considered that, hey, this is my job that has an impact not only on me and my personal health, but also on my family, my friends, and every other human then I think it would make people be able to deal with this, you know, new reality we have easier. Now, unfortunately, it's not, you know, if people would just like wear a mask and wash their hands and stay away from each other for a few weeks, this would be all over. It's kind of shocking that we have people that just don't care or they don't believe it's real. Even though I have, I know like a bunch of people that have died and that they wouldn't have died otherwise. So it's really a shame that, you know, you have people out there that don't believe in science. They don't listen to the experts. You know, one thing I learned at NASA is that everything we did was not rocket science. But when it was rocket science, you need to get your information from the rocket scientist. You know, not your buddy Joe on Facebook that claims to know what he's talking about. You know, trusted sources of information, experts in government, media, whatever, you know, the right people, not the wrong people that don't know what the hell they're talking about. 
Yeah, that's such an important insight. And I mean, one of the fundamental pillars of why we have this podcast is to try to teach people how to think and teach people how to rationally evaluate science, evidence, data, and make better decisions for their lives. And so, you know, I, I totally agree with that perspective. And, and I think it's really important. On a slightly lighter note, I want to come back to something you touched on a minute ago, which is, you know, what would you do for fun on weekends, quote unquote, in space? You know, so you don't have the whole weekend. You generally get like one day off. One day is kind of devoted to uh, cleaning the place. You know, bacteria and viruses grow in space faster for some reason. And, you know, we make sure we like wipe down every surface that, you know, you put your hands on during the week. And uh, something that you kind of have to do here during the pandemic a little bit, too. It's also important. So but, you know, in the spare time that you do have, I would read, I would write, I would watch TV shows or movies. I just, you know, do little projects that aren't like real science, but like something, you know, like there's a video of me like playing with a little ball of water with some dye in it and like throwing an Alka-Seltzer in it. And it looks like a, you know, a planet is being formed, you know, those kind of little things that you can then take with you like, you know, wearing a gorilla suit and chasing around one of your crew members, those kind of things. But also looking out the window, taking a lot of pictures of the earth, uh, you know, just kind of hanging out, chatting with your crewmates, similar to, you know, what I do here at home, minus the gorilla suit. <laughs> Fair enough. I was just curious, no, because it, it sounded really interesting. So I know your newest work is actually a children's book. What inspired you to write that? Here's my new book, Goodnight Astronaut. You know, the inspiration was, uh, you know, I wanted to write another kid's book. Kid's books are fun to write. The books that have a lot of words are a lot harder. It's fast. Fair enough. One of the hardest things I've ever done. This is not as hard. It's certainly a lot more fun. You know, I was inspired by a book, The Right Stuff. I hope my autobiography memoir inspires other kids like The Right Stuff inspired me. But I also, you know, thought having a book that could inspire some uh, smaller kids that they can, you know, have big dreams and achieve them. And the way I did it is I kind of structured it around going to sleep as kind of like a bedtime story. So, you know, starting off when I was a kid and all the different places throughout my life that I've had the opportunity to sleep in that were different, like a submarine or a ship or an airplane or a space station or a space shuttle, those kind of things. So, it came out on February 2nd, and it's got some great illustrations by this young lady who uh, is in her early 20s, lives in uh, England, Izzy Burton, and I think people will enjoy it. Well, as the father of a three-year-old, I'm excited to check that out and add that to our bedtime stories for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. I mean, what better bedtime story than a story about going to sleep? I, hey, I couldn't agree more. So... Scott, for somebody who's listened to this conversation and wants to put into practice one of the kind of themes or ideas that we talked about, what would one action step be for them that you would give them to take action in some way? You know, there's a lot of uncertainty in this world today, a lot of challenges, a lot of confusion, you know, with the economy, with the pandemic. You know, some people have it so hard. I mean, so much harder than me. I'm, I feel so fortunate that... Uh, you know, the pandemic hadn't hit me too personally. The economy, the downturn in the economy hasn't hit me too personally. 
But, you know, one thing I'd like to leave a thought I'd like to leave with people that are just having some really tough times is, you know, reach out if you need help. You know, there's no stigma around mental health treatment. You know, it's weird that, and I, and I know we didn't talk about this, but I think it's an, an important message that people should have. And that is, you know, we're very willing to go to the doctor when we're physically sick, but when it's a psychological problem, people aren't. And at NASA, we didn't have a choice. I had to talk to, you know, two psychiatrists and two psychologists every two weeks for an entire year in space. It was part of my job. Actually, I kind of, you know, kind of growed to enjoy it, actually, and I found it helpful. So, you know, if I know people and especially kids are really struggling now. And I just would hope and encourage them to seek help because the help is out there. It's available. You just have to be willing to go and look for it and ask for it. Yeah, such an important message and a great insight. And in many ways, echoes a lot of what we talked about in terms of mental toughness and dealing with fear and challenging situations. You know, your mental health is vital. And as you said, at NASA, I mean, if you don't take it seriously, it could literally be life and death. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Scott, for people who want to check out your work, you and the latest book, where can people find you and all of these goodies online? Oh, I think anywhere they sell books. Yeah. So not supposed to encourage one particular bookstore outlet, <laughs> but I think, you know, most places that sell books, they can find my different titles of, you know, book with a lot of words, book with a lot of pictures, kids books. That's a good way to describe them. Well, again, Good Night Astronaut just came out. I'm personally definitely going to get a copy. And Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your stories and your wisdom. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I enjoyed the conversation and uh, good luck to you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. 
Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.